Hi, and welcome to the Hip Health is Pow Her podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Anna Esperham. I'm an MD, nationally recognized physician with triple board certifications in integrative functional medicine, pediatrics, and medical acupuncture with special pain training and clinical hypnosis and aromatherapy certifications, and we have a team of healthcare professionals that provide real and evidence-based information to support women on their health and wellness path, and our goal is to empower you to awaken your best self, connect with the true you, heal and recover from health issues, symptoms, chronic pain, illness, life stressors, all while feeling your healthiest, full of vitality and stamina to do what you love. And now I'm obligated to tell you our disclaimer that Anna Esperham, MD, is a medical doctor, but she is not your doctor and she is not offering medical advice on this podcast. So if you are in need of professional advice or medical care, you must seek out the services of your own doctor or healthcare professional, as this podcast provides information only and does not provide any financial, legal, medical, or psychological services or advice. And none of the content on this podcast prevents, cures, or treats any mental or medical condition, as you are responsible for your own physical, mental, and emotional well being decisions, choices, actions, and results. Health is Power LLC disclaims any liability for your reliance on any opinions or advice contained in this podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to the Health is Power podcast. We have a very special guest, Dr. Aviva Ram, who also is a midwife, an herbalist, and a Yale-trained MD. She's amazing. I've been following her since I did my fellowship in integrative and functional medicine way back in the day. So I have learned from her myself, and I'm so incredibly excited to have her on the show. And we're going to talk about her upcoming book um, called Hormone Intelligence, The Complete Guide to Calm hormone chaos and restoring your body's natural blueprint for well-being, which I'm sure everyone who's listening really, really, really wants this book because I know a lot of women on the podcast have asked me a lot, a lot of hormone questions. So we're going to kind of dive deep with Dr. Aviva. So uh, Aviva, do you want to introduce yourself? Oh, wow. Yes. Thank you for having me here. And for it's so exciting to hear my book said out loud like that. So yeah, I'm Aviva. Um, I spent... 20 something years as a home birth midwife and an herbalist. I have four babies who, you know what? It's crazy. My youngest is turning 27 this month and my oldest is turning 36 this spring and two grandbabies who I had the really um, great fortune and joy to midwife at home, which is probably like People are like, oh, you're a Yale MD. I'm like, yeah, no, but I, I actually midwife my two grandkids at home. And that's the cool part. Um, and I've written a bunch of books and I see patients um, right now, telemedicine. I'm licensed in Massachusetts and New York, but people come from all over. And I love gardening and hiking and cooking and writing and reading. And yeah, that's me. Yeah, she is a great writer. She also um, has a website that I also follow, um, avivaram.com. So check her out. She's got lots of good information there too. So let's get into your book. So it's called Hormone Intelligence. So tell me like the meaning of the title and how you came up with it. Yeah, so originally it was the title of chapter two of the book. So chapter one was really like, how did we get to where we are with one in six women needing a fertility consultation, one in eight women having endometriosis, one in eight women or so having PCOS, 80% of us in our lifetime struggling with a diagnosable hormone problem and 50% of women over 60 
having a hysterectomy, like pretty astonishing stuff. So chapter one was originally called the hidden hormone epidemic. And then I was like, okay, but we're so steeped in our culture to think of our hormones as the thing to blame and our bodies as lemons and accepting this idea that we're just wired for hormone problems. So this idea of hormone intelligence came out of, it's almost like two kind of like connecting ideas. One is that we have this really deep innate hormone intelligence, right? Our bodies know what to do. Our hormones are amazingly, I mean, down to like parts per billion, these little tiny molecules control so much of our lives for most of our years of being on this planet. So the idea was that we have this innate hormone intelligence. So what's going on that's actually disrupting our hormone intelligence rather than us having something wrong with our hormones? What is disrupting that innate blueprint that is mentioned on the cover of the book? And then the other idea is that to really um, take control of our health and take our health back and take power over our health or whatever language we want to use, it also means understanding that hormone intelligence and making use of it by being knowledgeable about it. So on the one hand, there's this innate hormone intelligence. And on the other hand, there's this um, intentionality of truly understanding our cycles throughout our lives, what our cycles mean, what our, how our cycles show up, how to know what is normal and what may be going off track because of various factors and how to be more aware of our seasons throughout our life too. So it's an innate knowing and an, att an attention to our cycle, what I call cycle sense. Yeah. I, um, I, I wish, man, I wish this book was out a long time ago. I, you know, I think in the first or second year of med school, um, I had really struggled actually with menopause. So I went into menopause at age 25 and 26. Oh, wow. Unfortunately, it was due to a severe autoimmune disease called polyglandular autoimmune syndrome, where you have auto antibodies eating up all the glands, you know, throughout a, a woman's body. Um, but at that time, you know, I felt that while I was going to see an integrative medicine practitioner, I was using a lot of, you know, nutrition as a foundation, but not a lot of people knew about about hormones and, and sort of chalked it up. Okay. Well, you know, that's it. You're going through menopause. I'm sorry, but that's all we can do for you at this time. When I think a lot of, you know, what your book is going to come out and talk about are really about hormone balance, it hormone balance and what that really means for a woman, you know, despite us having issues with our hormones, how do we get our hormones back into balance? Exactly. So, you know, what you're saying is so important on so many levels. So I also just want to honor what you went through because that's a big deal to go through. And, and one of the things I talk about in the book, especially in the first part of the book is how many people do go to the physician's office with a hormone problem or conditions that are related to hormones, but may not be purely hormonal, like polycystic ovary syndrome or endometriosis, which is really an intersection between inflammation, immune dysregulation and hormones and are told there's nothing you can do. There's, you know, this is just chalk it up to being a woman, um, take some ibuprofen or go on the pill or get the hysterectomy, whatever it is, you know, for that woman's symptoms. And they're just, we're just not given options. But I also want to just really in honoring what you went through, say that this book is not meant to be one of these like wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, here's six weeks and your hormones are fixed. There are a lot of factors 
that go into why we're experiencing what we're experiencing now as women in our culture at this moment in our, in our physiology and some things like PCOS and endometriosis start before we're even born when we're in our mom's wombs or, or when our mom was in our grand, her grandmother, our grandmother's womb with these intergenerational, what are called epigenetic changes. And so I think in the, on the one hand, you know, the book really is about addressing the bigger root causes, which is why I can talk about PCOS or fertility or endometriosis or miserable menopausal symptoms all in one book, because it's getting under the hood of why those things are happening on the surface. But I also do feel there's a strong tendency, especially in the women's wellness movement and the integrative functional movements to kind of assume that we can fix everything with our diets or fix everything with the right supplements. And sometimes things have been going on for a really long time. And sometimes switches got flipped before we even had a say so on it. So like with polyglandular autoimmunity, it's like, that's not necessarily something that you can just reverse with a book. And I really want in this book to kind of provide a departure from that typical wellness book. So yes, it's got, you know, a very intensive, like, I don't say intensive because that makes it sound hard, but like a very comprehensive, beautiful plan for living a life that cultivates hormone and gynecologic well-being. It's got dozens of really good, strong protocols that are the same protocols I use in my medical practice. But there's also a permission to exhale to some extent and say, I'm not a work in progress all the time. I'm not, I don't have to fix everything. I don't have to be fixed. It's more about how do we sort of reclaim and honor ourselves as women, but in a non-reduction, like not in a biological reductionist way, but in a more um, organic way. How do we realign with our life cycles, cycles of seasons? What foods do we eat? How do we get better rest? How do we support our gut and our detoxification systems and how they interact with our hormones? But it's not about like, you're broken, let's fix you. And it's not about like, this is going to fix everything. It's more about like, this is a really deep reset. Yeah. And I, I also like what you said about the intergenerational, um, not necessarily trauma, but also something that may have gotten switched off or may have been percolating like from your grandparents or your great grandparents even. And so I kind of wanted to touch on that because I mean, not to keep talking about me, but I'm using myself as a case example. Um, you know, one of, so I've had, you know, I've had PCOS, I've had endometriosis, I've had ovarian tumors, I've had all this stuff in the pelvic area, chronic pelvic pain. And, you know, a lot of, you know, women's health issues um, that really was focused in this kind of womb area. And, and, you know, it all kind of percolated um, back when I was in high school, because gosh, you know, I don't know why, uh, you know, I'm still trying to discover this, but um, I, I sort of was against, um, like the womanhood. Um, I sort of was against myself being a woman. Like I was that weak or, um, was I ashamed of being a woman? I'm not quite sure, but there, I think there was some kind of like psychoanalytic issues there going on, but I'm also wondering like in terms of the intergenerational trauma, you know, from our grandparents and women, you know, being treated the way they were back then, have, have you seen anything where that kind of carries over in terms of our epigenetics and affecting? Yeah. Yeah. So two, two kind of like trains of thought come in here. One is the physical changes that can happen. <clears throat> and one is a story, <clears throat> excuse me. I had a patient who came into my practice probably about seven years ago 
and she had um, a, a kind of borderline breast cancer situation going on. And this woman was healthy. I mean, she had been a Pilates instructor, vegetarian, like healthful lifestyle from the time she was 18 years old. And she was in her late forties when she came to me and she sat down as so many people do in my office. So many women do. And she said, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. And I looked at her and I grew up in New York and spent the summers often at my grandparents' house, which was out on Long Island, which is near Jones Beach. It's a really like well-known beach in New York. And my patient happened to grow up on Long Island. And I said to her, you know what? You, you haven't done anything wrong, no matter what. Even if you had been eating like the craziest diet in the world that shouldn't cause this and you haven't been. I said, your grandmother could have chased these DDT foggers that they used to use at Jones Beach. So Jones Beach, a lot of beaches were cleared in the 50s using these DDT foggers. And so the kids would run after them or in the 40s. And she, I said, your grandmother could have been one of those kids running after the DDT. It just popped out of my mouth. And she said, Aviva, I cannot believe you just said that. I'm like, why? And she said, I'm getting chills. And then I got chills. She said, my grandmother used to tell us stories when we were kids about chasing this fogging machine, a DDT, which we learned was a DDT fogger. So the things that go back, you know, if you ever watch like an episode of that show, Mad Men, right? This is the 1960s when my mom would have been pregnant with me and all the women are smoking a cigarette, drinking a scotch and they're pregnant, right? So there's all this stuff that happened that was a trauma to us on a cellular level that nobody knew. And now years later, like with anything, DES, I mean, these things come back generations later. But we also do know from intercultural and anthropologic studies that attitudes about menstruation, attitudes about aging, attitudes about the female body affect how we experience those transitions, how we experience those phenomena like getting our period and actually can show up as symptoms. So in cultures where menopause, where women getting older is respected and revered, interestingly, women tend to have fewer difficult menopause symptoms. Similarly with menstrual health, women in cultures where menstruation is respected have apparently um, much fewer um, menstrual symptoms and dysregulation around their hormones. So it's really interesting. Now, is it possible some of those cultures are living more traditionally? And so maybe their diets are also simpler and other factors. It could be so, but that's not what I've seen in the literature. I've really seen it based on internalized perceptions and attitudes. So I actually talk about that in the book. Um, you know, how there's like a little exercise in the book where we kind of start to unpack our stories. Like my grandmother's attitude toward menstruation was what I heard about periods growing up was, um, you know, for me, for example, my mom, my mom's hilarious. She's this like diehard feminist was a single mom in the like late sixties, early seventies, raising me. And she's one of these like, ha ha, I laugh in the face of danger. My biology isn't going to stop me, you know? And so the story I had growing up about birth was that, um, my Grandfather was born at home on or about, we didn't even know his birthday. It was like also casual. My mom said she played softball with me a few hours before going into labor, then went to the hospital and had me a few hours later. So for me growing up, I never had a trauma story around birth or for me growing up, 
my mom was so determined to like not be repressive as this sort of like first wave feminist. And so she'd be like, Hey, Viva, I can have a friend over. I was mortified, but she said, Hey, Viva, can you grab me a tampon from the hallway closet and toss it into the bathroom? Like my friend would be at the house and I was, I wanted to curl up in a ball and die. But on the other hand, I do attribute some of my own comfort with, in retrospect, with some of those attitudes. And, you know, I've worked with women um, a lot who have grown up with very repressive cultural or religious beliefs around menstrual health, around their hormones um, or, or trauma, around how they first started cycling. Of course, you know, you add in things like sexual trauma that adds a whole other layer, but it really has an impact. And then what we believe in our culture, right? I mean, what do we believe about having a period? I mean, we still are embarrassed by it. Um, we still like stuff the tampon up our sleeve or try to hide the, you know, have make sure we have a bag to take to the bathroom. We don't just like walk through the office with our maxi pad in our hand. I mean, it may, maybe some of that's just like cultural sensitivity, but there's a lot of repression around um, how we hold our space when we're, when we're cycling. Yeah, I totally believe that 100%. I think that's absolutely right. When we're repressing these emotions, these feelings, um, we also internalize them into our physical body and manifest it into physical symptoms. And then it can get into this negative feedback cycle where it can worsen. So I, yeah, I totally um, understand that. And I see that in practice also as a, you know, an integrative pain doc as well, you know, um, manifesting in pain and worse, you know, menstrual um, uh, period pain, as well as headaches, since I treat, you know, a lot of headaches as well. Um, so when you're talking about, you know, menstrual cycles and say, you know, someone's having irregular menstrual cycles or difficult menstrual cycles, um, tell us a little bit about, you know, some of the ways that you would approach, um, these women who have some hormonal or imbalance issues. Yeah. I mean, so the first thing I always want to do is figure out what the imbalance looks like, especially around menstrual cycle stuff, because as unique as we all are, as, women, each one of us is as different as our fingerprint. There are patterns that evolve because we all have a similar innate blueprint, right? We're all supposed to have cycles somewhere between like 26 and 34 days and generally should bleed from like three to six or seven days. So there are certain things that we start to look for that are outliers of those patterns. Um, we ideally should ovulate somewhere around mid cycle and we shouldn't have dramatic period pain. I mean, it's one thing to have a little fullness in your pelvis, maybe a little aching because your uterus is engorged and you've got, you know, it's heavier. Um, it's normal to want to be a little bit more introspective during your, you know, premenstrual time. Those are normal things. I don't call symptoms. I just call those signs that your period is about to start. Um, but when we're starting to get levels of discomfort or, or irregularities, and that's why I start to look for patterns. So let's say someone's period is coming really frequently. You know, they're having 21 day cycles every month. I want to say, okay, well, what can cause that, right? What, what's going on there? What's, there's basic physiology happening here. So there's a really good chance that she is having um, either um, really high levels of estrogen. And so she's getting a very short first part of her cycle because her uterus is proliferated a lot or she's having a really short luteal phase, that phase after ovulation, because 
maybe she's not ovulating or maybe she's not producing enough progesterone. So I'll look for like those two patterns. If someone's getting cycles all over the place, they're super irregular. One month they're, you know, 40 days, one month they're 38 days, one month they're 60 days, then they go AWOL. Then I want to look at what could be happening there. And a couple of really common patterns are um, polycystic ovary syndrome that can cause that or something called hypothalamic amenorrhea, which can make your period go AWOL completely, or it can cause very long spaces between your period. So then I'll start to say, okay, well, let's unpack some, let's just look at those two examples, like super high estrogen, what could be going on there? Then I look at some of the things that we know are root causes. It can be getting a lot of environmental plastics into your circulation. So one really neat study looked at, um, uh, Latina girls who were 15 years old and um, the levels of phthalates in their bloodstream um, and their menstrual cycles based and they, what they found out was eliminating drinking from plastic cups and plastic water bottles, reducing sunscreen use. And I think it was their foundation also um, just within a very short period of time, like a couple of weeks dramatically reduce their phthalate levels. And those plastics are estrogen mimickers, they're endocrine disruptors. So I'll look for what is the exposure? I kind of let me back up and say, there are two questions that I ask when I'm sitting down and sorting out what's going on with that person in front of me who's asking me for their help. Because I really do believe in this innate biology. We have this beautiful, brilliant, we're like, we're incredible. Um, so I always look at what is in excess that might be throwing that system out of balance that I can reduce and what is deficient or um, not, not there that's needed that I can add to bring that system into balance. So with estrogen excess, for example, or some people call it estrogen dominance, plastics would be a form of excess. We need to reduce that exposure. But we also know that if the microbiome isn't doing its work properly, especially this particular part of the microbiome called the astrobilome, which is crazy. We actually have a microbiome dedicated to, to processing and eliminating excess estrogen and reabsorbing some of it too. So we don't get rid of all that we need. So I'll look at, okay, is the microbiome disrupted and it's not able to effectively eliminate estrogen? What's going on in the detoxification system, like the liver? because we have to break down our estrogen in something called phase two, package it in phase three, and then eliminate it in phase four. If we're not pooping every day, we're not eliminating it. So these are some of the kinds of things I look at. But then I'll also look at things like, well, okay, the detoxification system, there are a lot of nutrients that that system needs in order to work. So is she low in those nutrients? Is she getting her magnesium, her B6? Is she making enough um, glutathione from, you know, N-acetylcysteine. Um, does she have enough fiber in her diet? Thinking of fiber as a nutrient to actually have a bowel movement every day. So those are some of the things I'll look at. Then with a short luteal phase, is she not getting the substrates, like the foundational materials she needs, maybe vitamin C, maybe other nutrients, zinc, other things that support the ovaries to ovulate? Is there stress or is there a thyroid problem inhibiting ovulation? So on and on, there are patterns. And, and truly what this book is, is a mind 
I don't want to say mind dump because that sounds messy, but it's like a mind, a Vulcan mind meld onto paper of how I think through these things, but in a way that makes it into a plan. So you can figure out where you are in one of these patterns and then do the plan, which is pretty universal because we all need more fiber. We all need to work on our microbiome for the most, like all of this stuff. And then you can add in the little protocols at the end. It's actually nice. They're not little, they're nice, like compact protocols to like bump up the specific things so that let's say you do have low progesterone and you're not ovulating and you're trying to get pregnant or we all need to ovulate. Ovulation is way more than just trying to get pregnant. It's like fundamental for our health. Like here are the things you can do to get that going. So there are basically like six areas or six pillars that I look at food, um, sleep, stress, gut health, um, inflammation and detoxification, and then something called oxidative stress, which is kind of like rust on the inside, you know, um, if you think about oxidation and how that affects our ovarian health. And it's applicable for women across all the life cycles from puberty to menopause. Just a brief intermission to let you know our Health is Power Wellness Coaching Members Club has successfully launched with an amazing group of women and wanted to let you know that you can be a part of this too. This is a members club for women who want to heal or recover from any chronic symptoms, pain, illness, or who just want to have more energy, perform better at school or at work by learning and implementing evidence-based wellness, self-care, nutrition, fitness, integrative therapies for mental health, physical health, emotional, and spiritual health, as we'll have a monthly topic masterclass and workbook or health challenge with a community of women who are supporting each other each and also with an accountability partner. And this is the time to be well, stay well, because our health is number one. Without it, we really can't do anything. So please head over to www.healthispower.com and check us out. We'd love to have you. I like how you called it rust on the inside. I never heard that before. That's so perfect. Well, it's so funny. My kids, I remember one of my daughters, my next to youngest one, we had to go for a birthday present for a party that the kids were going to for a friend of theirs. And she's like, can we go to Toys All Rust? And that's what she thought Toys R Us was called. And it always stuck with me. So whenever I say the rust on the inside, I always think of my daughter. Oh, the Toys, Toys R Us. <laughs> Well, I think it's, uh, it's super interesting, um, because, you know, even in the oxidative stress cycle or detox and inflammation, I mean, all, all the, you know, six pillars that you were talking about, I mean, do require nutrients. Now I'm not saying that nutrients are, you know, the cure all by any means, but when I used to practice over at, um, KU integrative medicine, um, I used to see a lot of adult women and I would always do nutrient labs because I would always see women with a lot of chronic conditions. And so, you know, nutrition was our foundation. And when I did nutrient labs, I actually had never seen anyone without a nutritional deficiency. It's um, pretty stark. I mean, yeah. you, know, when you look at like, we all think about the CDC now and we think about COVID, right. And Fauci, but they have other things that they do. And one of the things they do is this thing called the NHANES study. And they do it, I think it's every couple of years. And they look at a lot of different health parameters around the United States doing random, large, like thousands of people, random samplings. And they did one study, um, I think it was 2017 or 18, uh, where they found that in all states in the United States, people were only getting 16% of their daily servings of, 
of vegetable of fruit, uh, wait, a fruit. Yeah. And 14% of their daily servings of vegetables. And that's based on the bare minimum set by the, you know, federal government. It's not even based on optimal and studies looking at women going into pregnancy, for example, there are just, it's shocking. Like how many nutrients that we actually need for healthy pregnancy that we're low in. And we know like low vitamin D, low magnesium, low calcium can all cause increased period pain, for example. So it is really important. And we don't have to necessarily supplement. I mean, I talk about supplements you can use in the book, but we can do a lot with our food. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, I mean, that's where I started when, you know, I was getting ill in the first, you know, few years of medical school and it, it really changed, you know, my quality of life was just changing the nutrition. I mean, think about all the, you know, some of the supplements and the therapies, and then all, obviously the spiritual and personal growth that I had to go through. But I mean, that was definitely one of the foundations that helped improve my quality of life, my energy levels, my menstrual cycles, you know, things like that. So, um, yeah, I'm definitely with you there. Um, I wanted to talk talk to you about um, PCOS. So polycystic ovarian syndrome. Now, you know, there are, there is a diagnostic criteria that we use, right. To diagnose polycystic ovarian syndrome. But since you've had years and years, decades of practice, um, you know, treating women with PCOS, I mean, what are some of the patterns that you've found? Because I've seen different patterns for women, you know, with PCOS, it's not just all about, you know, insulin resistance, for example, it's not just all about weight loss. So can you share some of your insights into PCOS? Yeah, I mean, it's a really complex condition that affects a lot of systems. And I mean, even when we look at like the Rotterdam criteria is sort of the gold standard of criteria, but even within the criteria for diagnosing someone with PCOS, there are 10 different manifestations. So it goes A through J and um, the, like there are lots of different permutations. And I can tell you from having gone and spent seven years in medical training, I had all of zero hours on PCOS, zero minutes <laughs> on PCOS, even though my specialty is women's health. I mean, I was offered to create a new residency in women's health, internal medicine as a med, as a resident when I was at Yale. And even in that, there was nothing in the curriculum, nothing on PCOS. It was insane. Um, so most people are coming out of their training, knowing nothing about it. Maybe they've heard of it. Maybe not. Um, probably when you get into your like gynecology, deep into the residency or fellowship, maybe you get some training, but I was not, I mean, I knew of it because I was a midwife first. Um, so a lot, most doctors have no idea how to even identify it. It's not even on their radar, uh, for the most part. And so there are some patterns, but it's, it can be a really tricksy diagnosis only because laboratory findings don't necessarily confirm it. Some lab, like if you have high testosterone and you have symptoms, or maybe you have high luteinizing hormone, which can be tested for, and you have symptoms, you may get a diagnosis, but it's not hundred percent confirmatory. A lot of people with PCOS do not have the classic string of pearls that you see on the ovaries, which is a reflection of the, all the um, little ovarian cysts that are forming, but not ovulating. They don't all have that on their ovaries and not everybody has a classic set of symptoms. So I look for, like you were saying, you know, patterns, does someone have really irregular periods that sometimes go AWOL or are really far apart and often happen since they first started getting their cycles or in their early twenties, 
you know, do they go a month, two months, or not a month, but do they go like 35, 38, 40 days, 60 days, 90 days? I've had a patient who came to me, hadn't had a cycle in eight months, and then had one period before that and hadn't had a cycle for a year before that, right? It can be that irregular. Um, there are some classic findings like hair in unwanted places called, it's called hirsutism. So women who get some hair on their chin, hair around their nipples, hair on their lower belly, but you can have that and not have PCOS, but that's a more classic finding. Cystic acne, especially around what I call the beard line. So where men would have beards because they have increased stimulation of the follicles from testosterone. When women have PCOS, that those follicles are stimulated by the androgens and, and we get um, cystic acne and uh, losing hair. So what's called female pattern hair loss, um, which is thinning, can be diffuse thinning of the hair. Uh, those are some of the classic symptoms. There are some more subtle symptoms too. Um, something with a fancy name called acanthosis nigrans, nigricans, which is um, darkening of the armpits, the groin, and the back of the neck. And that's usually seen when there's really significant insulin resistance. We see that in diabetes. Um, but there are some really subtle symptoms. So for example, women with PCOS are 50%, 50 percent of women with PCOS um, have a little bit more depression or a lot more depression than people without PCOS. Women with PCOS have a very substantial risk of developing sleep apnea. I, I don't know any doctors, I mean, that test for, I do now, but I don't know any doctors that test for sleep apnea when a woman has PCOS, but that can cause high blood pressure, sleep problems, weight gain, afternoon fatigue. So you can have somebody who's walking around with irregular periods, their hair is a little bit thinner than they want it to be. Maybe they get some unwanted hairs. Their, their doctor's like, oh man, that's not a symptom. And they're fatigued every afternoon. They have trouble waking up in the morning. Their functional doctor saying, oh, you have adrenal fatigue. And because I've seen integrated functional people miss it too. Like everything's adrenal fatigue or limes. And that's to say that some things aren't, but not everything is. And they go years, years without a diagnosis. And it's often when they bump up against a fertility challenge that they finally get a diagnosis. Yeah, that's what, I mean, you know, I, I have a lot of women um, who listen to the podcast and a part of my members club who um, do have issues with, um, you know, hormone imbalance, infertility. And so, you know, in, in regards to the infertility um, issue, do you see PCOS as sort of the number one pattern or is it really varied in terms of some of the women that you see in your practice in terms of the cause? I mean, my practice is a little bit unusual. And I just want to back up and say, it's hard to get a PCOS diagnosis. If you get one, great. But if you don't and you think you have it, it's still okay to treat presumptively because the things that you would do, you know, would be to work on making sure you're working on your blood sugar balance, insulin support. And you do ideally want to get a diagnosis so you can get checked for things like sleep apnea. My practice is a little bit unusual in the sense that over the years, my practice has evolved from a, evolved not meaning better, but just shifted from being a more community-based medical practice um, in addition to my sort of specialty practice to just to just my specialty practice. So when I'm in the more general population, I tend to see more people with more classic PCOS with this stereotypical overweight and symptoms 
in my practice, I have a lot of people who are in the wellness movement who also are often, I mean, you can, I I just want to back up and say, to me, weight is not a factor for like being overweight is not something I judge. I support all women at their body sizes. If someone is truly like medically obese, then I want to work with them to get their health online. But being overweight can be associated with PCOS, but not always, right? 30% of people aren't. So in my practice, I actually see a lot of hypothalamic amenorrhea because I see a lot of women who are more restrictors and underweight and kind of avid clean eaters. I'm doing clean with air quotes and avid yoga people. So often they're underweight and that is leading to suppressed menstruation and that causes their fertility challenges too. So I see pretty much, I would say, I don't know, I've never done a count quite honestly, but you know, I would say probably half and half of like PCOS versus hypothalamic amenorrhea. Okay. Yeah. From the wellness movement. Yeah. Kind of eating. Yeah. Very healthily. And then yeah. Underweight. I totally understand. Just not having the fat, the body fat and calories to produce those hormones that you need juicier and fertile. Yes. Yeah. I, I, so I'm such a big promoter of trying to get more women. Cause I see this so often in my practice, um, and in my clinic, um, and even in my previous clinics that I've worked at, um, that not a lot of women are eating enough healthy fat, um, for their, you know, uh, hormones. Um, and so, I mean, do you see that as well? Do you try and see, and, and when you're changing their diet and nutrition, try and push a little bit more healthy fat that they're not eating as much fat or they're low fat, Yeah. I I have a lot of people who have followed paleo also. So I I have a lot of people who are eating like a lot of coconut fat. It's, it's all over the board. Mm. I think I do see a lot of people who are trying to eat good quality fats, but maybe they've read my stuff before they come to see me anyway. So they're a little bit cued into that, but where I do see a lot of skimping is, but, but I do. And I talk about in the book, I talk about in general, women being fat phobic, right? Like this idea of fat phobia and we don't eat these healthy, rich avocado and olive oil. And, but where I really see the skimping is carbs. And it's interesting because we know that we need some whole grains, some good carbs to make enough neurotransmitters like serotonin, um, especially premenstrually to help prevent PMS. And so that's, I see a lot of carb skipping and I see just a lot of food skipping, like not eating enough quantity, a lot of fear around food, a lot of discomfort around eating. And I get it. I mean, look, I grew up in this culture too. I grew up with a mom who like did the Atkins diet and did the, you know, like all these weight watchers and all that. I think so many, I would, I don't know a lot of women who don't have some, not an eating disorder, but some dysregulated eating where we never think about like, the calories and something, or we never think about that food in relationship to our physical appearance and our weight. So I think it's so challenging to um, just, you know, for all of us as women in this culture to love food and eat well and nourish ourselves. Yes. And be comfortable with our bodies in the moment, love ourselves for who we are. I mean, I see that a lot too. And, and I, you know, I've seen a lot of very health conscious women who, um, start off with, Oh, they're got to go gluten-free and then they're going to go dairy free. And then they're going to go ketogenic. And, and I mean, it totally, I've seen them totally crash their hormones and they get totally burnt out and then they can get sick because of it. And so we just had, um, 
a podcast episode this week on the ketogenic diet for women. And we talked about, you know, some of the downfalls and some of the, you know, some benefits, but it's, it's really just about that balance and really nourishing yourselves and feeling like comfortable and feeling full and healthy and satiated. Um, I, I try, you know, at the KU integrative medicine clinic, I tried all the different diets that we prescribed, right. You know, the specific carbohydrate diet for people who had gastrointestinal conditions, the ketogenic diet for, you know, kids with cancer that I, that I was seeing. So I would try all these. And so when I did the ketogenic diet and I was skimping on the carbs, just like you said, oh my gosh, did I feel the sickest I've ever felt? You know, I've also done vegan and vegetarian, which I also felt very sick too, but without the carbs, I just like totally couldn't think. I would think I was a little bit depressed. I mean, I was just kind of going through the motions day to day until I started incorporating, you know, finally getting over the ketogenic diet and, and incorporating more of the complex carbs, the potatoes that I love, you know, the grains that I love. And so I just felt better with it. And so it, it's good to experiment, but sometimes the extremes can really affect, I think, women's hormones itself. Yeah, for sure. I, the approach I take in the book, which of course, you know, the publishers, they want to like make everything have a like catchy sound. So it's the horm- the book is hormone intelligence. And then actually, when I was telling you about the, the chapter, as soon as I submitted that chapter, my, my, publisher was like, that's the title of the book. And he's like, everybody understands emotional intelligence and social intelligence. And now it's like, let's embrace this hormone intelligence that you're, you know, talking about. But um, in the book, of course, they call it the hormone intelligence diet uh, or no. Yeah. Hormone intelligence diet. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of unpack the word diet when we get into that chapter, but it's really based on kind of a classic plant-based Mediterranean style of eating, which I mean, for women with PCOS, it's so blood sugar balancing for women struggling with endometriosis, it's anti-inflammatory and immune system supporting. We know that studies looking at everything from menstrual pain to chronic pelvic pain, those women who eat more fruits and vegetables and more fish and less red meat. And I, I like red meat. I'm not, you know, dissing red meat, um, less red meat, um, and less, um, inflammatory foods get results. So it's really based on, you know, what do we really know about food and what do the experts agree on, right? Like if you look at every different diet out there, um, there are some things that everyone agrees on, good quality fats, lots of fruits and vegetables, or at least vegetables, paleo may not be lots of fruits, but at least lots of berries, um, you know, whole plant, uh, uh, whole organic, you know, good quality food, and um, a lot of plant-based sources in the diet. So I do a lot with seeds, legumes, and the recipes are really good too. Ooh, the recipes in the book? Yeah, yeah, there's a yes. lot. Yes, okay, I'm good. A, I'm like an avid natural foods cook. And um, it's pretty funny. I started doing natural foods cooking, um, I mean, I was like 16. And when I think back of some of the, on some of the stuff my husband ate early in the years we were together, I'm just like, ew, how did you ever eat that? you know, it was like these dense, like hard, I don't know, just like awful tasting things that I would concoct with, you know, and we were vegetarian or vegan back then. Now I've gotten to be a really good cook and uh, I love it. So they're all my recipes in the book with the exception of two that are with permission for like a, um, organic seed bread and an organic seed cracker, which really are good. Oh, so fun. Gosh, you're like multi-talented, the Renaissance woman. (laughs) I think it's my therapy. Cooking is like, it's funny. My husband loves to do the dishes because it's, it's soothing and it's like a, 
a thing that you do it and it's done. And I, I love cooking. It's so relaxing. The creative part. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I like it too. I like to just not follow the recipe and just make it, but most of the time it just bombs, but there is always that one moment where it comes out really, really good. <laughs> yeah, I just generally make things up, um, except for baked goods, baked goods. I'm not, I'm not particularly talented at, so I have to follow recipes. Yeah. That's, I just do it for the baked goods. I'm just like, I just can't follow a recipe. I'm just like, ah, that's not going to work. Let me just do it myself. <laughs> so then my husband's like, you need to follow the recipe. And I'm like, listen, guys, if I follow the recipe, it won't be as good as I make it. I promise. <laughs> that's what I made these almond homemade organic almond joys this weekend, Ooh. With dark chocolate. And it was so funny. My husband loves them. I don't, I love certain, I like, I'm more savory. So I would go, like, for me, it'd be like the sweet potato fries or something. That's what I would enjoy as a treat, right? But he loves chocolate and coconut and almonds. So I made them and I used a different kind of chocolate and I did it in a cast iron pan, which I never have, should have done to melt the chocolate. So I'm rolling them the, the things after they come out of the freezer in the chocolate and they looked, I won't even say, they just looked like poo. Almonds. Like I was going to say turds. They looked like, <laughs> like little. And I was bent over the kitchen counter, hysterical laughing when your tears are popping down your eyes, but they, they look prettier on the plate and they taste good. Whatever. Who cares what they look like? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm excited to get the book. So, um, for listeners out there, if you're interested, you can actually go to avivarom.com. So it's A-V-I-V-A rom r-o-m-m.com and you can actually pre-order the book through a website and then she has special bonuses too if you pre-order the book and um, before june when it comes out um so if you all are interested please go to her site and get that book and um if i have two more questions before you go but yeah, um no. what are some of the top like three tips for someone listening right now that's dealing with like hormone imbalance issues yeah so one is to just sort of step back. And if you can write down what's really going on, if you can start to identify the pattern, are you feeling, you know, certain way at the certain time of month, if you're heading into perimenopause and your cycles are irregular, can you start to document like what actually is going on? How do you feel? You know, when are your periods coming or not coming? What other things do you notice at what time of the month? And track for, I mean, obviously if it's urgent, go, you know, get help. But if you can give it a couple of months of tracking your patterns, or if you already know, write them down because one, you can look up online what that pattern means, you know, before my book even comes, you go to my website, other places, um, or when you go to a good integrative practitioner, naturopath, nurse practitioner, who's knowledgeable in alternatives, et cetera, that pattern, because we are so cyclic, it's the, it's the um, it's when we jump off of the cyclic pattern that reveals what a lot of what's going on. The second thing I would say is if you can just do a few dietary changes, there are some core dietary changes that really have been shown across the board to make a huge difference in so many of the conditions that I talk about in the book, PCOS, endometriosis, period problems across the board, period pain, irregular cycles, um, PMS, fertility, fibroids, and perimenopausal symptoms. And I would say if you were going to pick three things to do, I would eliminate red meat for now and focus on primarily fish, good quality, low mercury fish like salmon, sardines. Those are good. Um, increase your vegetables and fruits to eight servings a day 
and make sure to get a lot of fiber every day. So if you increase your servings of fruits and vegetables to eight a day, which isn't that much, like a big, good, healthy lunch salad has like four servings in it right there. And then you could add, if you like it, a couple of tablespoons of flax seeds to your diet every day. And um, so uh, those would be, you know, a few of the dietary things I would do. And then the third thing I would say is anything you can do to improve your sleep is going to improve your hormones. And we underestimate the amount that we need. And we, we really need seven hours to eight hours of sleep a night. So six, five, it's going to affect your cortisol. It's going to affect your ovarian function, but also being more tired increases our sensation of pain. So if you can do like a pre-bed wind down, meditation tape, listen to music before bed, stay off of electronics for like 45 minutes before you go into your bedroom, um, aromatherapy, anything. So those would be the three big things. Pat check your patterns, make those few dietary shifts, get good sleep on. Yeah, no, I think these are perfect. I actually was going to say something when you were talking about checking your patterns. So just like for an example, um, I remember when I was on the PICU, so pediatric intensive care unit rotation, very, very sick kids, you know, the kids are dying every single day when you walk in mm -hmm. to the ICU and it's a very stressful time. Well, I remember the PCOS um, that I had at that particular time, just totally flared the cystic acne. I mean, the irregular cycles, the really intensive period pain. Um, and I just remember you know, I had to take a step back because it was so incredibly bad. Like it was affecting my functioning at work that I, I had to understand what was going on. What was the pattern? And the pattern truly was my worth as a physician being in the ICU. And if I could actually take care of these kids, because I just felt like I am not doing enough. And I was associating my worth that was, um, interrupting my menstrual cycle and my hormones. So it, it was a very intense time for me, but it was a great learning experience, um, in terms of my growth at that time. Um, but it was something similar when I was on my oncology rotation and it was the one rotation where your pager is truly now your cell phone, but going off every two minutes and it's like, there's severe crises. And, you know, you'd often have patients on your rotation who were your age and had children and you're just like, oh my gosh. So it's like, there's so many levels of emotional, um, intensity. And then the physical, like you, you just don't sleep and you're on every third night awake. And that was the first time in my life I started drinking coffee too, because I was just trying to keep that mental clarity. And I somehow thought that would help. And I never had menstrual cramps my whole life. I've been really fortunate to have a very easy, I mean, I started eating, like I got into this stuff when I was 15. So, um, you know, I, I've really been really fortunate to have kind of a great anti-inflammatory, if you will. And like, also I'm jealous. I'm, I'm, I met my midwives that were my mentors when I was 15. So like that embrace of, of the feminine and cycles. And that has been a part of my life, my whole life too. But I just remember in the middle of the night, one night on a rotation, I was like, Oh my God. Like I just like had to kind of bend forward. I had the worst cramps and that went on for two cycles. And then I was like, what on earth is going on? And I ixnade the coffee, which really helped. Um, and then I was off that rotation and getting a little bit more sleep and not having that stress where like people's lives were hanging in the balance based on my ability to, to do it, you know? Oh yeah. Um, that whole so circle. It was very, very similar. Yeah. I agree. And you I... know what? There are a lot of women. I, I have a whole like 
there's a couple of pages in the book dedicated to those women who have to work night shifts because it's a real thing and it does disrupt our hormones. So I have a big whole thing on that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm super excited to read that then. Um, okay. And so my last question is, uh, what is the most inspiring book you have read? Oh, wow. Um, I would say it's not, I don't know if it's the most inspiring book I've ever read. Um, but I think the book that I, I recommend most to other people, it's kind of an outlier. It's not like some fabulous feminine book. It's called Mindset by Carol Dweck. I read it. I love that book. I was at a conference and Alexandra Jameson, who is the nutritionist in the Super Size Me movies. She used to be movies. She used to be married to Morgan Spurlock, who's the guy who eats all the McDonald's. She has a beautiful book called Women, Food, and Desire. And we were at a conference and she said, I just read this book. It's a game changer. And I really, you know, she's very bright and I really trust her judgment about like her taste and game changer stuff. So I read it and it's a real shift, you know, particularly in what you were talking about your worth, right? Because you're judging yourself. You're on that rotation and you're judging yourself. And as women, we judge ourselves so hard on top of the judgment the world is giving us. And this book is all about how we reframe how we think about trying big things, failure, um, and how we see ourselves as human beings. And to shift from this mindset of being a judger to being a learner, to me, is such a beautiful gift to give ourselves. I think it's honestly, I think 80% what I tell a lot of my patients and my clients is that 80% is really our mindset. Um, and 20% is the work that we put into it. I mean, it's, it's really 80% of how we feel about ourselves, um, the belief in ourselves, um, our self-worth. Um, and I mean, that's the major, you know, game changer, um, yeah. is in, in any endeavor, um, relationships, career, um, health, wellness, personal life, you name it. So I There's totally agree quote that I love which is um, our ability to heal is greater than ever anything we've ever been led to believe. And I really feel like I've been really reflecting on this lately about mindset also, which is if you don't actually believe that you can feel better, you won't actually do the stuff because you're like, yeah, I'm not going to take these supplements because they're not really doing anything or yeah, I'm just going to eat that or drink that because it's not really doing anything or yeah, I mean, I've exercised four times and I don't have abs, so it's not really doing anything. So we, that mindset shift, I feel is really powerful and important. Yeah, I agree. And that's why this book called Hormone Intelligence really taps into our innate capacity to heal. So I'm super excited to bring that to our little world. So thank you so much, Aviva Ram. Thank you for this podcast. I am sure everyone's going to love it. So um, again, just reach out to Aviva Ram. She's at www.avivaram.com. I'll put it in the show notes and in the podcast details so that you guys can pre-order her book, Hormone Intelligence.